We're going to mix up the service a little bit today. We're bringing the sermon forward just a little bit in the service so that we can get through the 3,000 baptisms that we've got later on. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name's uh, Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here in the life of the church, and, and I get the privilege to look after uh, the kids and the youth in this place. Um, I often get to do the holiday uh, service preaching, which is awesome, but for some reason they let me up here today to do what I think is probably the biggest service of the year. Um, I honestly feel pretty humbled to be up here with you all this evening, or so this morning. Also, just want to quickly uh, welcome those of you who have actually come to, um, to participate in the baptisms today whether your family or friends who've travelled here, um, it really is good to see you today. I know some of you have come quite a distance to do that, and we just really appreciate you, and I know that your loved ones also would appreciate that as well. We're also live streaming today. So there's a bunch of people who's going to be watching it, a couple from over in America, which is very cool. So hello to uh, the States, and it's um, yeah, great to have them participating with us for this morning. A few weeks ago, when we were talking about baptisms, I got up the front here and I made a joke and said that the more baptisms we had, the shorter my sermon is. So I'm doing an introduction, then we're going to pray, then we're going to sit down, because <laughs> we've got that many this morning. I want to start this morning by asking you a simple question. What is it in life that fills you with the most joy? Is it perhaps a new job that you've just landed? Is it a new relationship that you might have entered into? You might think your marriage is going really well. Perhaps you own like a flash boat or jet ski or a car, something like that. Maybe you have a stack of money in the bank and all these interest rate rises don't mean anything to you. Or maybe you just got some clear test results from a recent medical examination. These are all good things. They provide and they fill us and they fill you with great joy. And in them, you should be excited. Absolutely, they're, they're a good thing. I heard a saying once that said, money can't buy you happiness, to which a friend of mine responded, well, have you ever seen anyone sad whilst driving a jet ski? It's, it's a good philosophical question, is it not? But seriously though, as we look at these joyous things in life, you need to know that none of them, not one, will last. Eventually, you won't have that new job anymore. You'll either quit or you'll be sacked. For some of you, you might be sooner rather than later. Your new relationship, you will eventually leave that honeymoon period and sometimes it just isn't going to work out. Your marriage will one day end when one of you does die. And on top of that, you're not going to be married in heaven either. Your flash boat, your flash car might be nice now, but it will one day be in a scrap pile. And you will eventually need to spend that money that you've saved, or you might die with it, but you can't take it with you. And sure, you might get that clear test result to give you a few more years, but one day you'll get the results that aren't going to mean that you live any longer. I desperately want you to see this morning that all of these things will fade away. What they provide you with now is at best temporary, and it just doesn't last. Now, I'm not going to stand up here as the pastor and try and pretend to you that I always get this right myself. In fact, I'm going to confess to you this morning that I sometimes, in fact, all too often, in my heart, it is disorientated into where it looks for its joy. You see, I can have a pretty good run in life. I can feel pretty happy. Things will be going really easily for me. But all of a sudden, you get sick, money runs out, a loved one dies, and it's pretty easy to begin to spiral and to think, man, my life sucks. And then for any temporary joy that I was finding in those items to be robbed. Have you ever thought something like that before? 
So the question for this morning becomes this. Where do we find our joy? Well, I propose to you this morning that what you and I need is to find this joy in something, or should I say someone, who has no beginning and no end. Have to find it in someone who is in control even when things seem dire. We have to find it in someone who promises to work all things for good. We have to put it in someone who's already passed through death and conquered it. Someone who, when you die, will be with you on the other side to usher you into an eternity with a never-ending joy in their presence. As I was preparing for this message just, uh, just this last week or two, I was reading some big portions of Scripture to try and to determine what is the best way to present this Easter message. You think it should be pretty easy, right? Pick a gospel, read it, explain it, wrap it up. But I don't think it's that simple. I was reading through 1 Peter chapter 1, and this will be up on the screen for you to have a read with me. This is what it says in verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. It says you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Have you ever had a spiritual slap across the face? This was a massive one for me. I think it was a big, thick King James Bible that hit me right across the side. Tom, are you filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy in your life because of Jesus? My question for you, church, is are you filled with a joy, inexpressible, so glorious in your life because of what Jesus has done? Because of his work on the cross. My job now over this next little while is to help you to see Jesus more clearly and as the faithful one and who is worthy of your praise and adoration and that as you see him more clearly, my hope is that it will lead you to what is a great joy that is found only in him, only in what he has achieved. We're going to look at two points. First one's this. We're going to look at one proof or evidence of the resurrection being a physical one and that it actually happened. And then secondly, we're going to look at why it matters. Why does it matter and how does it change us today? So we're going to start with this, which is the resurrected body and the evidence for it. When you hear the question or when you hear the claim that Jesus has been risen, what do you think of? What do you think of? A skeptic, they will say that they don't believe in it and that it was just a myth that was made up. Another religion, they might argue that, yeah, Jesus was real, but they hid his body or they switched it out. It was a double. Even for us as Christians, there are still people within the Christian worldview who believe that Jesus has risen. However, they don't necessarily think that it was a physical resurrection. Perhaps it was spiritual. He just appeared for a moment. But this morning, though, I want to say to you this, that Jesus Christ is risen, that he is alive, and most importantly, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he has a very real, a very physical body. We're going to read now a rather large account in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 29, and it's going to be on the screen for you to follow along with. I trust you can read the font size. This is just after oh, Jesus has been resurrected. It's what it says from verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. 
and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been one at the head and another at the foot and they asked her woman why are you crying they have taken my Lord away she said and I don't know where they've put him at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus so he asked her woman why are you crying who is it that you were looking for Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. Jesus simply said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And then Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news and said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of that week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he then showed them his hands and his side. The disciples, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, and he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Remember that part, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those you have not seen and yet have believed. There's an awful lot of meat that we could chew over in this passage. Um, as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of John over about three or four years. So eventually we'll get to this where we can cover it a little bit more extensively. However, for the, however just for this morning, I want you to be able to see something really clearly that John's trying to present to you. He's trying to show to you that this resurrection was a very physical thing. You see, we live in a spiritual world. We don't fully see it right now. However, there is a spiritual element to everything that's going on. What we see is the physical reality. That's what we're in at this very point in time. And so, if there were a non-physical resurrection as physical people, it wouldn't do us any good. What we need is a real body to die a real death in order to carry us to a real eternal life into a real physical kingdom that's not here yet fully but in the one to come i want us to look at something in these chat in these verses that we just read if we go to the next slide please in verse 16 jesus says mary he calls her by name in verse 17 jesus speaks to mary and says do not hold on to me in verse 19, it simply says, Jesus came and stood among them. In verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
Verse 21, pretty simple. He breathed. And then in verse 27, he said, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do you see what's happening there? They are six physical actions or responses that someone with a physical body would do. It seems to us today that John is trying to show us very clearly that Jesus appeared physically post-crucifixion. Not just as a spirit, not just as a hologram, not even in a dream, but he physically appeared multiple times and with numerous interactions. The author of his gospel, John, he's going to tremendous lengths to show us that Jesus is alive. And he has good reason to do so. You see, John, well, he's very close to Jesus. And when I say close, he's very close. He's been with him throughout his ministry. He's seen his mighty works. He's seen the miracles. And he has seen what Jesus has done throughout the entire time. It is actually incredible if you consider just for a moment what it is that John got to witness. John is actually described in the Gospels as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the very disciple who got to sit next to Jesus at the, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he was one of the inner circle of three disciples, namely Peter, James, and John. So John, he knew Jesus better than almost anyone. I would say certainly in the top three people. And he has, just in the last couple of days, witnessed his Messiah and, frankly, his friend be brutally murdered on a cross. John is so convinced of what it is that he has seen Jesus do in his ministry. And then now, in his crucifixion, and most importantly, in his appearance, that he is going to tremendous lengths to try and help you to see and to record this for you. Why is this the case? Well, a little bit further on in that same chapter, verse 31, this is what it says. This is John writing. He says, These things are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is absolute in his resolve that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And he knows that life, not only here, but in eternity, is found only in Jesus. In no other person or no other thing, but Jesus alone. But I say to you this morning that John isn't the only one who's convinced of this message and of this good news. The Apostle Paul decides to join the party as well. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born. So you can see now you've got Paul jumping in on the same party, saying that not only has Jesus appeared to the apostles, or that he's appeared to him, but that he's appeared to more than 500 at the same time. And he says that most of them are still alive today. Now, obviously, he's not talking about literally a life today in our midst. But what he is saying back then is saying, you don't believe me? You don't believe my testimony? Go and ask them. There's lots of them. Go and talk to them, please. I beg you. They'll say the same thing. What we have here is we have two accounts of two different people. We have John and we have Paul. Multiple appearances in both 
all pushing the importance that Jesus is raised from the dead. They are intent, intent on you seeing that Jesus is physically alive. Why? Because they know that we are in a physical reality with a physical problem called death that needs a real physical solution. Which leads me to my second point, which is this. Have you ever paused to consider how this day changes absolutely everything for those who believe? Have you ever thought about that? It's easy to just get into the routine of church and go along each Easter, or maybe that's the one service a year you head along to, or that in Christmas. But just pause and think. How does this day change absolutely everything for those who believe? A little bit further on in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul writes. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that absolutely everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. If Christ is dead, we have no hope. And he, and frankly speaking, you and I today, we're wasting our time. If Christ is dead, we should pack up and go home. Go eat some chocolate. Go do something with your family. Go enjoy life. Go find whatever temporary small amount of joy that you can in whatever area of life you want to do and just make yourself feel happy. Because, hey, you'll be dead in a few years. You'll be in a box like everyone else. And sorry to say, but for the people getting baptized today, well, you're going to look silly, aren't you? Getting dunked in front of 300 people for no reason if Christ is dead. And to top it all off, well, Jesus himself would be an absolute fool. Would he not? Who would tell a lie, have an opportunity to escape that, yet still willingly go through with that lie, knowing what was going to come? He wasn't the first person to ever be crucified. He would have seen them. He knew what the punishment was going to be like, yet he went through with it. Any person who tells a lie and goes through with it to that point of death on a cross would be a liar and a fool. Absolute fool. Don't know if, have you ever heard of the term martyr before? A martyr is a person who dies because of their testimony for Jesus or their faith in Jesus. They're real men and women who have died real physical deaths, often in some of the most painful circumstances. Yet for many of these people, when they were killed, they actually did it with a great joy and, and actually, it was almost like an expectation as they approached this time. In some accounts, if you actually decide to look into it a bit more, they, some people actually ask if they could suffer more so that they would experience more joy in what it is that they were about to encounter. If you want to be encouraged in your faith, and I'd even say challenged, do yourself a favor and study a bit about the early martyrs. But what I want to do now is read a list of names to you and of the way in which these people died, according to historical documents. I'm not going to say exactly how each person died with regards to what action that happened to them, but you need to know they were crucified, they were burnt, and they were sawed in two. They were brutally killed in the way that this happened. Listen to these names for a moment. Simon Peter, martyred. Andrew, martyred. James, martyred. John, lived a life in exile, died of old age. Philip, 
Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Zebedee, Simon the Zealot, all martyred. Have you heard those names before? They were the disciples who followed Jesus. These men bore witness to him post-resurrection when he appeared in that room. And to be honest, this list doesn't even include often those disciples' disciples that they had, most of whom also died as martyrs, killed in very similar fashions. So sure, Jesus could have been a liar and a fool, but then what do you say for these people? Do you think that all of them died senseless, painful deaths? Or do you think they were perhaps so convinced of what they saw in Jesus, in his ministry, and most importantly, his resurrection, that when he stood before them, they had nothing else to say but my Lord and my God? These people were filled with great joy, even in death. Why? Because they knew that Jesus was alive and well, physically. I don't know about you, but these martyrs help me. They help us to see that what they saw was so real, was so powerful, that they would happily die to spread the message and to make sure that it got out. They knew that it was and is a physical resurrection. And that should encourage you today. You see, the knowledge of Jesus being alive physically should fill you with much joy like these martyrs because they know that death is simply a doorway into eternal life which Jesus demonstrated that for them very evidently. It wasn't just a nice idea, it wasn't just a spiritual thing, but it's one in which the future is sure and certain because the one who said that he would die and rise again, he did it. He backed it up. About a month or so ago, we as a pastoral team got to travel down to Adelaide for the Acts 29 conference. It was a good conference, we enjoyed our time down there, got to have a few days off before it with my wife and my son. But on the last day, we got to head back to the airport and we caught some cabs. Um, I've never seen so many people pack into a, into a taxi. And in the car that I was in, we had this lovely Pakistani man and we struck up a conversation. He said to me, what are you guys doing in Adelaide? And I said, well, we're at a conference. And then he asked the question back and said, well, what conference were you at? And in the back of my head, I thought, oh, here we go. I know where this is leading. And I said, we were at a church conference. Ah, Christians. Interesting. Well, I'm a Muslim. And so for the remainder of that trip, for about 20 minutes, we had a wonderful conversation about Islam and Christianity. He was a smart man. He knew a lot about his religion and about the Quran. He had some very interesting points. And to be honest, he actually knew a fair bit about the scriptures, about the Bible. I enjoyed the conversation. I don't know if the others in the car did, but I loved it. Most of all, it was just going backwards and forwards, but something changed right at the end of the conversation. And I want you to hear this really clearly. This is what he said, or rather I should say asked me. He said, you know, I'm a Muslim, but I believe that your Jesus existed as a messenger. I said, oh, that's good. And then he said, did your Jesus kneel to pray? I said, yeah, he did. And he said, did your Jesus ever fast? I said, yeah. And he said, and did, did your Jesus pray to God? And I said, yeah, prayed to his father. Well, the one thing I can't get my head around is that I, as a Muslim, I do those things. I'm doing what your holy person did. Yet most Christians I know, they hardly, if ever, do those things. In fact, they even say to me that you could simply be a murderer. You could have killed lots of people. Yet all you have to do is believe. 
have faith in God, trust in what happened on the cross. So I said back to him, my friend, when you die one day, how do you know that you'll get into paradise? And he said, ah, two things. The first one is that I have faith. And I said, that's excellent. Glad to hear. What's the second? And he said, well, that I will have upheld the law of the Quran and that Allah is merciful to me. I said, so you're telling me that you've never done any wrong in your life, you've never sinned, and you have perfectly upheld all of the law of the Quran. He looks at me and he just begins to laugh. And he says, well, I've tried my best. The old saying is true, that there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And you need to know this morning that unless the Lord returns first, you and I have a death date that's locked in. It's not written in pencil or even with whiteout sitting there to possibly change it. It's in solid ink and there is nothing that is moving it. And when you die, you have a problem. You see, the scriptures are very clear and they teach us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of that sin is death. It's separation from God. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of medical cover, status or fame that will count for anything on that day. In Mark chapter 10, there's a wonderful account of a rich young man who goes to Jesus very proudly, but asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He tells Jesus that he's, up, he's upheld all of the law. He thinks he's ticked every single box. That was, however, until Jesus pointed out to him, pointed out to him that he had great wealth. He needed to go away, give every, all of his possessions away. But the man was unable to do this because of the greed that was in his heart. Listen to this interaction that happens from verse 24 in that parable. Jesus said, children, he's talking to his disciples, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Church, Jesus shows us clearly that the ability to save yourself is impossible. The gate is very small. The path is very narrow for you to be able to save yourself, for you to even be able to find salvation. But God. But God. Who is rich in mercy... He has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Church, you've been saved by grace. You've been saved by the grace of God. Our great hope in life is not that you can be a good person, that you can live up to some marker or somehow live a few extra years. For this taxi driver in Adelaide, his hope is in Allah and that when he dies that he would be pardoned because of his ability to follow the law to which even he has zero confidence in himself that he has even done it. That man has no hope. He has no joy because he has no possibility of being saved on that day. Church, the great hope that you have and that I have, as well as an invitation for those of you who have not yet believed, is that although death is our last enemy, that for those of us who trust in Jesus, it is not an enemy but a doorway to eternal life. 
We can know confidently and joyously that when we one day stand before God, and you will, you won't have to have worked up enough credit, but instead you will stand before a God who will step in for you and say, no, this one's with me. That should fill you with great hope and tremendous joy this morning. And how is this all possible? Well, let me summarize it for you. Because we have a saviour. One who came to this earth, who lived the perfect, sinless life, who died the death for you and I, and most importantly, was raised to life three days later. He has then ascended to the right hand, uh, sorry, ascended to heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, his children. He is the soon returning king, the one who reigns over all, the one who is himself life, joy, peace, hope, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's who we celebrate. I'd like to invite the band back up, actually, as we come to the end of this. You know, the Apostle Thomas is most commonly known as the doubter. As someone with the name Thomas, uh, and he's been in the church for a very long time, uh, I often get coined that a fair bit. (laughs) Anyone else Thomas in the room might know that. But I want you to hear something that he says that is truly profound, that most people skip over. He's just asked his big doubting question, but I think it's pretty reasonable. And Jesus has told him to put his hands into his wounds and to feel that they are real. But it's Thomas's response to this that I think is truly profound. He says, my Lord, my God. My Lord and my God. Now the disciples, it says that they were locked in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders. Yet this man, despite wanting to remain hidden from them, he makes what is one of the most blaspheming comments he could have ever said as a Jew. Doesn't deter him. He knows who it is that he sees. And his only response isn't, how was the footy last night? How's the weather going outside? Or what have you been up to? His only response when he saw Jesus is, my Lord and my God. He gets it. He gets it. And in that moment, he chose to be in submission of Jesus Christ forever. That meant that whatever came, Jesus was his Lord. He was his God. And he was the one in in whom he put his trust and in whom he found hope and joy. Thomas decided to invest his life by investing in a person who is eternal. The one who says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's who he put his hope in. You know, to the people getting baptized shortly, this is what they're doing as well. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is raised to life after dying for their sin, and that as a result of this, they will be testifying before you today and in the waters of baptism that their life belongs to Christ. Isn't that cool? church you need to know the physical resurrection happened the proof is there and if you've struggled to believe that and if you're here today or watching i'd encourage you to look into it more we need not think church that this life is all that we have rather we can have absolute assurance that when our day comes we will be with him in a very real 
very physical body where all things will be made new. Yeah. This ought to bring you joy. Not just a temporary one as what the world offers, rather one that endures and gives you hope for tomorrow. You know, if you're here today and you can't say that Jesus fills you with this joy, or perhaps you can't say, my Lord and my God, it's an invitation for you today to come. To come taste and see that the Lord is good. No matter what you have done, how far you have run from him, his grace and his mercy is sufficient for you. My heart yearns to see people come to the Lord. But you know whose heart yearns for that even more? is our Father. But secondly, I want to say this. And this is for those of you who call yourself Christians today. In this next song, we're going to sing another hymn, which I've loved doing those these last few weeks. And I want you to sing loudly. Allow the words to minister to you and to those around you. But I want to encourage you to do this. Whether it's during this song to yourself quietly or whether it's later today or tomorrow when you devotion or whatever it looks like, sit before the, the Lord and simply say, my Lord, my God. My Lord and my God. Church, would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And Alan's going to lead us in this hymn. And then we're going to say some baptisms, hey? Let's pray. Jesus, you were so great. You were so high and lifted up. So worthy of all our praise. We want to thank you for what you did a little over 2,000 years ago. And that you would come to this earth as the one without sin you would be the perfect sacrifice so that we as sinful people might live. Thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to the apostles, to the 500, Lord, to so many people in that time in a physical way. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all greater faith here this morning to believe that in a way we perhaps never have. Jesus, I pray for those in this room whose hearts haven't put their faith in you. Would you open their hearts to that this morning? For people who've perhaps been sceptical or doubted you, Father, would you turn that disbelief into trust, into faith in you? Thank you for what you did on the cross. But Lord, I praise you that what you did three days later. Because of that, we have life. And so we praise you for that this morning. Father, I pray that as we go forward in the rest of our service, as we witness the baptisms, as we participate in song, participate in prayer corporately later, Lord, would you fill us, those of us who believe, with an inexpressible and a glorious joy as we look upon our Saviour, who is the high and lifted up one. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for your work on the cross. And thank you for your blood. 
for the power of Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.